Tim and Liz have been with our uh, church for a while and, and serving faithfully here and um, sad to see them go, but at the same time, um, really excited and hoping that um, we can visit sometime. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the Fornies being in our life, for blessing us with us, uh, with their presence, with their works in the kingdom. And as they take that heart to serve to another country, I pray that you would continue to bless them. I pray for their provision. I pray for all the logistics to be worked out. I pray, God, that you would give them peace in this large move, give them peace uh, to their families and to their friends as well. Lord, please uh, keep keep them in our minds as we pray. And prayer is the most important thing we can give them. We ask God that uh, you would remind us of that. In Jesus' name, amen. Cake. After. Sorry for the hat thing. My head's like burning. So, hat head. Anyway, I uh, hope everyone's been enjoying um, Chinese New Year. Um, I'm still taking red envelopes. So, one of the things that um, I think a lot about this time of year are um, the flavors uh, of this holiday, uh, the, the sights, the scents, uh, the sounds. Um, I, I really like the loudness of it. Like uh, I, I like the firecrackers. I, I like the drums. I like the gongs. I grew up with that stuff. I, I love that stuff. And I, I was one of those typical Chinese kids that was made to go to Chinese school. Every Saturday, 9 a.m. to 12 p.m., Chinese school. And uh, I got involved in all the cultural stuff as well. So I was taught to lion dance. Not lion dance. Lion dance. Um, dragon dance. And uh, kung fu. That was from 12 p.m. to 3 p.m. I had some militant parents. Um, so I, I was, I was um, also one of those typical Chinese kids who was made to take piano lessons. Anybody? Look at, look at, look at this. Um, how, how many of you actually took any type of musical lessons? Anything? Not, not piano. Anything? How many of you quit before you got really good? Okay. Cool. Um, I, I played piano for a couple of years. And um, that was until this, uh, this fateful evening when um, an accordion salesman came knocking on our door. And then my life changed from, from playing classical music to playing polka. <laughs> and I actually played for over six years. And, and there were times in, in the past where the worship team was, was trying to get me to play during worship. You know, I thought about it and I was like, oh, it's just too much of a distraction. I mean, where am I going to stand? Like, you know, it doesn't like blend in with this stuff. And um, so anyway, uh, I want to bring up an important concept of uh, uh, an important concept within music. And it's it's the concept of consonance and dissonance and consonance and dissonance. You know, these can be pretty technical terms, but let's just make it really simple and say that consonance is is harmony. It's it's a chord. It's an interval that that sounds stable. It sounds pleasant. I have a surprise. This has been with me since I was eight years old. 
an eight-year-old holding this thing, I was buffed. And I had a humongous left trapezius, like, like doing this thing. Um, it was awesome. I would arm wrestle this side. I, I was awesome. Anyway, so like a C chord, right? Consonants. Borderline dissonance, right? But you can do like a Latin thing. That's that's definitely dissonance. That's better. That's consonance. That was the Latin in me. Now we will put that aside because that was a distraction. That even has an amp. Okay. Dissonance. Dissonance is the quality of sounds that comes across as unstable, right? It comes across as unpleasant. And we find that we, we have a need for, for that dissonance to be resolved, to, to go into a stable consonance. And we often find music that ends with dissonance, it, it tends to be unpleasant. And, 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 and we have this need to find some sort of resolution. And it's kind of like a bad ending to a movie or a story. Don't you hate bad endings? You just find yourself leaving the theater and you're just saying, like, what a stupid ending. That was a dumb ending. And don't you find yourself thinking about that ending and, and how many ways it could have ended better? And do any of you remember last year's Good Friday service? Was anyone here last year? Or a few? Do you remember that Good Friday service? And do any of you remember that last note that was played on that Good Friday service? It was... So memorable for me because it was so dissonant to me and it was so disturbing to me and it was done on purpose. It was actually really, really brilliant. Um, It gave me this unpleasant, this uneasy, this unstable feeling, um, which is what we were trying to do here. And and the reason why was because the third day didn't happen yet. So we wanted to leave it like that. and, And then on Sunday it would be resolved. And so we were, we were trying to get across the passion, and we ended with this, this incredibly jarring dissonance, and then it was just silent. It was so uncomfortable, but it was brilliant. I'm not saying that dissonance doesn't have a place in music. Dissonance has its place in music. In fact, it's very effective in, in terms of expressing a certain type of feeling or mood, and it's understood and heard differently in different types of musical cultures, different styles, traditions, time periods. People receive music differently. And what one perceives as consonance, another perceives as dissonance. What, what someone hears as beautiful music to their ears, another, person's, uh, another person receives it as uh, running, running their nails across a chalkboard. I have that to play for you as well. Okay. Okay. So this is what, what's happening between God and Jonah and Nineveh. And at the, at the climax of this story, God is playing an incredible musical masterpiece of grace, mercy, love. And when Jonah hears God's beautiful music of grace, mercy, love, forgiveness, second chances, faithfulness, Jonah is so pleased by that music, right? It's so soothing to his ears. But when God plays that incredible musical masterpiece of grace, mercy, love to Nineveh, well, that sounds absolutely horrible. What sounds so beautiful to Nineveh is so unbearably God-awful for Jonah. And what Nineveh is hearing sounds so different to Jonah. 
This story is a great musical composition. It's a, it's a masterpiece where consonants and dissonance, they're just brilliantly composed within one another. Now, now the dissonance happens pretty early on in Jonah. Back in chapter 1, look at verse 2. The word of the Lord came to Jonah and tells him to cry out against Nineveh, for their wickedness has come up before me. This wickedness is where we first get this sense of disharmony, where we get a sense that something's off, something's wrong with the world, and that there's sin, that there's this lost people, and God can't tolerate that. He can't bear to see humanity in which he created and loves keep spiraling downward. It's dissonance to him. And even though the, the Ninevites were violent people, they were oppressive people, he still loves them. God's love is bigger than just the, for the ones who are treated with injustice and who are oppressed. He even loves the oppressors. That's one of his messages in Jonah. Sure, the Ninevites don't deserve grace. They don't deserve mercy of God. But really, do any of us? God's heart is for the fallen. It's for the lost. Those who are heading downward. Even those who are the ones committing injustice. Even those who oppress and take advantage of others. And this may be tough for some of us to hear, but it's true. But before the dissonance, there's consonance. It's a harmonious word here. The word great. And as we shared a couple of weeks ago, it comes up quite a few times in this story. Chapter 1, verse 2. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it. Because its wickedness has come up before me. We see from the very beginning that there's this harmony and there's this discord right at the beginning. And Jonah is told to go to the great city. Jonah instead runs the opposite direction. And and the Lord sends a great wind and a great storm to stop Jonah uh, from running by breaking up that ship. The mariners say to one another in verse 7 of chapter 1, Come, let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. They want to know who's responsible for this mess. Who brought this trouble upon us? Now, the New King James Version that we historically use here in the pews, it gives us two different English words for the same Hebrew word. And the first dissonant words, uh, the first dissonance word we come across was wickedness. And the second one in verse seven is trouble. Both of those can be interpreted as evil in Hebrew. Evil seems to be the recurring dissonance in this book. So in the beginning, we see that the wickedness or the evil that God wants Jonah to address belongs to the Ninevites, pagans who don't know the Lord. And then we see how the second dissonance, the trouble or evil, falls on the one who's a man of God, a prophet of God. And the mariners cast lots and and they point to God's disobedient prophet and the disobedient man of God who is responsible for this evil. Now, keep in mind that this is dissonance to the Israelites who are the audience of this text. Thinking, how can this be? A prophet of God is disobedient? A man of God is responsible for the storm that is threatening the lives of others? It's not the Gentiles or the pagans who are disobedient, but it's it's God's prophet? Jonah's thrown overboard and the fish swallows him. Jonah cries out to God from the belly of the fish, and God forgives him and delivers him from the fish's belly. There's resolution. There's resolution to the dissonance. And Jonah heads to Nineveh after giving a second chance. So off he goes, even though he goes reluctantly. And you're thinking, why the reluctance? Well, there could be many reasons why. 
But perhaps one of the more compelling ones was that the Ninevites were probably responsible for killing some of his family and friends when they came and conquered the northern tribes. He didn't care for them. He didn't even like them, let alone want to give them a message from God that would potentially benefit them. And Jonah goes through the city one day's walk and cries out in chapter 3, verse 4, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Like I shared last week, some scholars believe it was more than just this and that this was just a summary of what was said. But I think one thing can be sure. I don't think Jonah's heart was into this. I don't think Jonah um, really wanted to do this, as you can see in chapter four, when we're going to get into that. I don't think Jonah was putting much effort into this. And it seems like he's just doing it just to say that he did it. Not meaning anything from it from his heart, just doing it. And you know what happens? The people actually listen. They took what they heard so much to heart that they acted upon it and what was told to them. And even though Jonah did this half donkey job, but God did a great thing. Did you know that the spiritual works aren't dependent on us? God doesn't need us. We need him. He chooses us, but he doesn't need us. God doesn't need us to be the most dynamic or the most skillful or the most gifted. He doesn't need anything from us. But he chooses to work through our our obedience. He chooses to work through people of obedience. He does the work. And remember that the next time you're critical of church. Or critical of people doing spiritual things. Is what you're critical about the work of man? Or is it the work of God? That's not to say that we aren't to put forth our best effort. Because we should. But the ultimate outcome of a spiritual work is not dependent on us. It is dependent on God. Now isn't that free? That's great. Whether you lack confidence in yourself or others lack confidence in you, it don't matter. It doesn't matter. Are you obedient to the calling of God? That's what matters. He'll do it. God will do it. And you know what else happens? The Ninevites change. They show signs of repentance by by fasting and wearing sackcloth. They're convicted of their evil ways and, and broken before God. And it's not just a few of them. It's, it's a national repentance. When was the last time you were convicted of sin that you made changes to your life to line up with God's will? And I know we aren't perfect, but when's the last time you had a repentant spirit? When was the last time your heart was broken because the spirit showed you how far you are from God? And are you teachable and humble enough that you allow God to work in your life? And I think some of us may be caught up in so caught up in our intelligence that we that we think we know so much about biblical things that that we end up actually being spiritually stupid. And the spirit is living and is up to great things, including convicting us of sin and moving us towards repentance. But some of us are fooling ourselves that we're followers of Jesus when we're really living according to our flesh. And can you imagine if an entire nation was broken before God and sought to get things right with God? Everything that we've done wrong, we just lay before God and say, sorry. We want to change and live the way you want us to. That's it. 
And the people of Nineveh do this from the king to the poorest of the poor. And even the animals are made to participate in this. Have you ever seen an animal repent? We have a dog, as many of you know, Joey. And sometimes Joey misbehaves. Not often because he's actually a pretty good dog. But last year he ate a quarter of my daughter's birthday cake that was just sitting on the kitchen counter. And it wasn't cut yet or anything. It was perfectly made cake. It wasn't even store-bought. This is homemade cake. It was perfect. And we were wanting to put two candles on it for my daughter's birthday. And she was excited because she was like, oh, I'm going to get to sing happy birthday to me. And we're going to bring the cake out to her. And he ruined it. It was terrible. She's crying, my cake, my cake. I had to do everything not to behead him. And sometimes he he takes my girls' food right out of their hands while they're eating. Sometimes he ruins their toys. Not cheap. Sometimes he digs in the trash. Well, anyway, he knows when I'm upset at him for doing a naughty thing. He knows. He knows when I'm not happy about his behavior. And when he does... His ears go back. His puppy dog eyes get bigger. And look at me. His tail goes between his legs. He gets really low on all fours. And he's like skimpering over to his mat in the living room. And he just sits there. He's on timeout. And when I walk over to him, because I'm still mad, he rolls over. I give. I give. I give. Now, cats are different. They don't repent. Do you know why? Because they're evil. That's why we don't have one. Cat in Hebrew means evil. Cat in Greek means evil. Cat in any language means evil. Even sign language. It means evil. Cat means evil. There's no way that they put sackcloth on a cat. There's no way. So, so we see the people of Nineveh overwhelmed by the awareness of their sin. And we see that it's not because Jonah did anything spectacular in and of himself. It's not dependent on Jonah's gifting or, or him being a dynamic speaker or his skill set. The spiritual work taking place was all because of God. God who is great. God who desires to have a relationship with us, shows us our misguided paths and and wants to make our paths right. It's about the Spirit of God falling on people and leading us to repentance so we can have a relationship with Him. And we see the evidence of repentance from the Ninevites, the best they know how to repent. They really don't have a background on it. They just kind of like, okay, what do we do? do? Right? What do we do? Um, National foul. No one eats. Not even an animal. No one eats, no one drinks. And um, everyone uh, put on sackcloth. Everybody, even an animal, puts on sackcloth, except cats. And you can see evidence of their brokenness. And we'll see at the end of chapter 4, verse 11, how God looks at the Ninevites. He looks at them as a, as a compassionate God who recognizes that they, that they don't know their left from their right. What does that mean? That, that's, that means they don't know the difference between right and wrong. And at the end of chapter 3, verse 10, um, we see how our compassionate, forgiving God works. Then God saw their works, and they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that He had said He would bring upon them, and He did not do it. 
from dissonance, from their evil ways, to consonance, relented. God is full of grace. God is full of love. He seeks harmony, even though we seek discord. And just when we think this musical masterpiece is coming to an end, we get another dissonance. Chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. You would think that Jonah would be ecstatic. Ecstatic that so many people didn't have to die. That even though he was disobedient initially, that this act of obedience saved so many. This is supposed to be a great spiritual accomplishment. And I mean, talk about a successful ministry. 120,000 people saved. And their livestock. Even though this message from Jonah wasn't good, it wasn't dynamic, he didn't really have his heart into it, we're reminded that it's not so much about human effort, it's about obedience. Well, this is like running your nails along a chalkboard for Jonah. This is unbearably awful. God saving Nineveh is the most terrible music he's ever heard in his life. What the Ninevites see as music to their ears is exceedingly displeasing to Jonah. And in other words, he sees this as as an evil thing. Not just evil, but like uber evil. Right? Like William Hung taking Pavarotti's place in the three tenors. Like, not that I see that as evil. Because I'd like to see that like Ninevites. That that would be awesome to me. Anyhow. You notice how Jonah was more than all right when he was he was on the receiving end of of God's grace. Right. But how his tune changes when Nineveh's on the receiving end of God's grace. Jonah isn't just a little upset. He's ticked off. He's really angry in the beginning of Jonah. The Israelite audience is thinking the problems lie with the Ninevites. It's like, oh, it's obvious. Ninevites have the problem. That they're the ones who need rescuing because they're evil. But we find as we read along that, that it's, it's, uh, the Ninevites are God's smaller problem. Right? The bigger problem is Jonah. Jonah, a prophet of God who seems to have a, a superiority complex, who seems to be so full of himself, who's so arrogant and self-righteous that he can't fathom God forgiving people, people he doesn't like. He can't accept that how he thinks can possibly be wrong. A man of God who doesn't have the heart of God. He's resentful about what God has done. Sometimes we think that the biggest problems are the godless. But oftentimes it's those who who know God who are the biggest problems. I can attest to that one. And I'm sure many of you can too. Do I hear an amen? Amen. It is not the non-believer who gives me a headache. It's the people who claim to know Jesus and follow Jesus that give me migraines. Like, I get a headache thinking about this. It's no different here in the Jonah story. Verse 2, So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord! Was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. This is the second time we see Jonah pray. 
The first time he prays, he's in the belly of the fish, as low as he can go into the deep sea where he thinks he's going to die. He's desperately crying out to God to rescue him. God delivers him. Isn't that like us? Oh, God, get me out of this. I'll do whatever. I'll do whatever. Just help me. Please help me. Help me. Help me. God, help me. You're delivered. God's shown you grace. But how about when someone we're at odds with is delivered by God? Well, that's absurd. How can God deliver her from that terrible life? She dumped me after two weeks. She deserves to die. God, kill her. Don't rescue her. And how soon we forget the grace of God upon us. Jonah isn't that different from us, is he? In times of desperation, we cry out for, for him to rescue us. Help me, God, help me, save me, save me. But when we don't get our way or someone we despise gets their way, the tune changes. It changes to, oh God, kill me. Just kill me. Just let the crazy bicyclist from Berkeley ram right into me. Like... Even though I have the right of way, just, just let them plow right through me. We're so childish, aren't we? God, give me what I want, how I want, when I want, and I want it now. And not only will I pray just good things for myself, but I want you to ignore the prayers of those that I despise. Ignore them. Don't answer their prayers. And if you don't, just kill me. Kill me. And Jonah is telling God, I told you so. I told you, God. But Jonah didn't say anything like that in chapter 1. He just took off in the opposite direction. But now he's saying, I knew it. I knew you'd go easy on them. I knew you'd do this. And there's this phrase in verse 2 where Jonah says, You are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Jonah didn't make that up himself. Jonah is referring back to Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 where the Lord proclaimed of himself and said, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. And this would be pretty easy for an Israelite to recognize as they're hearing this story. They'd probably look at each other and say, Hey, wait a minute. Uh, Jonah's quoting from Exodus when, when Moses was hanging out on, with God on Mount Sinai. Um, Moses wanted to see God, but he couldn't, otherwise he'd die. So, so Moses was just shown his glory, and God gave him the Ten Commandments. And then Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God. Notice that this is all caps, so this is God's name. It's not just the title God, it's his name. Merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. This is awesome. God is confessing who he is. He's showing Israel his heart, his character. These aren't just empty words. These are promises as to who God is. This is the very integrity of who God is and his identity among the Israelites. And the Israelite audiences knew Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, like the back of their hand. So when Jonah mentions it in Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, they all knew the words to Exodus 34, 6. So they would also notice that Jonah doesn't completely quote the verse in entirety. Jonah leaves something out from that Exodus verse. It's like the Pledge of Allegiance. Right? Some of, I hope all of us know that. It's like that for us in terms of leaving something out, right? I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation indivisible with liberty and justice for all. 
what was left out? Under God. It's like leaving under God out of the Pledge of Allegiance, which some people would like to do. But we'd all know that it was left out. And why is it left out? Or, or why would people want it left out? Because they want to send a message by deleting under God. That's what Jonah is doing. He wants to send a message. Jonah chapter 4, verse 2. You are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. In Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, God proclaims the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. Anything missing in between those two verses? Jonah leaves out truth. The word truth, or even a synonym to truth, is not in Jonah chapter 4, verse 2. And an Israelite audience would catch this right away. But hey, he left something out. They would all see that Jonah is trying to do something here. Jonah is trying to hold God responsible to his own confession. Saying, yeah, God, you're all that stuff. But what about truth? You said you were going to let him have it. I even told them, yet 40 days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. But that's not true, God. Jonah is assailing God with his words. He's attacking God's integrity. He's attacking God's character. Why is Jonah doing this? Maybe Jonah hated the Ninevites so much that he hates seeing them being delivered by God. And he figured that since he hates them, that God has, has to hate them also. And perhaps Jonah is afraid of looking dumb. That, that what he said didn't come true. Or maybe he's afraid of looking like he's a friend with the Ninevites when he goes back to Israel and, and all of them will think, Ninevite lover, right? In, in Anne Lamott's book, uh, Bird by Bird, she quotes one of her friends whom she calls Priest Tom. So, and Priest Tom says this, You can safely assume that you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. God is so loving. God is so patient with Jonah, even though Jonah attacks God's character. Even though he questions God's integrity. I'd have a hard time if someone attacked me like that. Wouldn't you? God's so good, even when Jonah is being immature. Verse 3, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And even though God is attacked by this ungrateful guy, he, he responds with a simple question. Verse 4, The then the Lord said, is it right for you to be angry? And then you notice that Jonah is like an adolescent. He doesn't even answer God. He just walks off. Verse 5. So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city. There he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade till he might see what would become of the city. Jonah is giving God the silent treatment. And some of you are thinking, that's silly. He can read your mind. But are some of us doing the same thing? When's the last time you really talked with God with stuff or when he's told you something and you just kind of walked away from it, ignoring what he's told you? Well, Jonah's obviously mad and he's probably hoping that, that God is still going to let him have it after 40 days. Verse 6, And the Lord God prepared a plant and it made, and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. And you notice the word prepared here in this verse. It's the same word used in chapter 1 where God prepared a fish. 
Verse 7, but as morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm. And it so damaged the plant that it withered. Same word prepared for a worm. God commissioned, God assigned, God appointed a worm. First, God was the original Aquaman commissioning a fish. Now he's the original Tarzan commissioning a worm. Verse 8, and it happened when the sun arose that God prepared a vehement east wind and the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Then he wished death for himself and said, it is better for me to die than to live. Then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And he said, it is right for me to angry even to death. Yes, Jonah is very mature. About the age of my two year old. And he has a flair for the dramatic. And actually, prophets were a little bit dramatic. And you'll notice that when God wanted to get a message across, he would use prophets to do more than just say what he wanted them to say. He wanted them to kind of act something out. I'm going to give you a couple examples of this. Take, for instance, Ezekiel. Ezekiel in chapter 4, God had Ezekiel lay on his side for 390 days. Over a year laying on your side. You see, God wanted people to, to think about um, what was going on. Like, dude, right? And, and, then, and then eventually about their unfaithfulness to God. And another example is Hosea. God, God had Hosea marry a prostitute. He did so to get across this idea of Israel being, having infidelity with God. So you see that the prophets are usually somewhat like actors while while Israel is the audience, but not so in Jonah. In Jonah, God takes on the role of the actor and God sent the wind. God sent a fish. God sent a plant. God sent a worm. And we find that Jonah is the audience. And well, what's happening here? God wants to save Jonah. You think what? He's a prophet. He's a man of God. How? Why does he need to be saved? In verse 5, Jonah heads to the east side of the city. Why east? Israel is to the west. Why wouldn't he go home? And to the east are the enemies of Israel. The east was known as the enemies of Israel or the enemies of God's people. Do, do, you, do any of you remember which direction Adam and Eve went after the fall? East. East of Eden. Great book. Which direction does Cain go after he kills Abel? He heads to the land of Nod, which is east of Eden. When Lot separates from Abram, he journeyed east as far as Sodom. And now we see that Jonah is going east towards the direction of God's enemies. And here we have Jonah baking in the hot sun and and God prepares a plant to provide shade from the sweltering sun. Jonah is mad about everything. He's mad at Nineveh. He's mad at God. He's mad about the sun and the heat. And God, in every step of the way, is so loving to Jonah, even though he doesn't deserve any of it. And this image of shade is really profound. And to the Israelite audience, it's, it's very rich in meaning. You see, the Israelites are a desert people. Shade means something to them. And for those of us who have been to Israel and stood out there in the scorching sun, we know the value of shade. So let me give you some Old Testament illustrations as to what shade meant to an Israelite. Psalm chapter 17, verses 8 through 9. Hide me under the shadow of your wings from the wicked who oppress me, from my deadly enemies who surround me. 
Psalm chapter 121, 5 through 8. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. He shall preserve your soul. The Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. Isaiah chapter 25, verse 4. For you have been a strength to the poor, a strength to the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat. For the blast of the terrible ones is as a storm against the wall. There's this picture in the Old Testament of what shade means. And what it means is, is to be under the protection of God. Not just ultimate UV protection. Protection from enemies, from our enemies. And if you look at verse 6 where it reads that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. The Hebrew word for misery in this text is the same word in Hebrew where we get the word evil. So in other words, to deliver him from evil. Sound familiar to anybody? We ask God to deliver us from evil in the Lord's Prayer. We pray that in the Lord's Prayer. And it's not like Jonah didn't know where the evil was. He knew it was in Nineveh. He knew it was the people who weren't like him. God knew it was Nineveh as well. And the audience receiving this story could recognize the dissonance here. And in verse 6, we find that Jonah was so grateful for the plant, not just for the shade, but because of the meaning behind it. To him, when the shade is up, the enemies of God are going down. Which means... Nineveh's going down. Jonah's thinking, cool, they're going down after all. I got my sign of shade here to tell me that. God protects his people. He's going to wipe those guys out. I'm going to watch the show. So we're told that that Jonah is not just grateful, he's very grateful. He's rejoicing at the prospect of the Ninevites getting destroyed. The depth of hate that we all potentially have within us. Finding joy in watching 120,000 people die? Jonah received the great grace of God when he was down, when he was at the bottom, when he was upset, when that great grace was offered to someone else he didn't like. He's so childish. Kind of funny. Man of God being like that. Jonah has this arrogant, judgmental, self-righteous, calloused heart. And we find that God was has a harder time getting through to his prophet than he does to pagan Gentiles. Funny. It was the same in Jesus' day. The people that were most difficult to get through weren't the prostitutes, the tax collectors, those that were deemed as the major sinners. The people who Jesus had the most difficult time getting through to were those who thought they were the religious elite. Those who thought they knew everything about the scriptures and spiritual matters like the scribes and the Pharisees. The religious scholars, the professors, the pastors, the teachers, the leaders, the ministry leaders. They were the ones ones most difficult to minister to because they thought they knew everything already. They were arrogant, judgmental, self-righteous, callous towards Jesus, God incarnate. That's funny. It's sad, but it's funny. I think the ones who, who have to worry most about this Jonah complex are those of us who think we know what Christianity is all about. Those of us who think we have Jesus figured out. 
We have the Bible figured out. We have ministry figured out. We think we know best in Christian environments or how to reach people or, or how to interpret the Bible or how to pray or how to do anything, how to worship. We're the ones who are most susceptible to the Jonah complex where we think we know more than anyone else th- that we actually don't. And we start labeling people and we start rejecting the notion that others have spiritual things to offer us because we know best. I'm a spiritual guy. I'm a spiritual girl. I've studied for so long. I've been a Christian all my life. I have all these degrees. In France. I've told this story before. I'm going to tell it again. Uh, I think it was a couple of years ago when this um, humongous suburban cut me off while I was driving to Sunday morning service. And I just felt the anger within me just boiling, boiling over at that driver. I was so mad. And I was hitting my steering wheel and saying bad things. And, and I thought about, about catching up to the side of that car and showing them a bird and uh, cutting them off. And I thought about honking and flashing my lights at them incessantly. And I thought about rolling down my window and spitting at the car and yelling profanity and throwing things in my car at them. Yes, I can be like Jonah at times. And then I noticed that this tank pulled into the church parking lot. Can you imagine if I did any of those things that I was thinking? What I came to find out after service was this family was just dropping their son off to Cal. That it was his first year. They wanted to find a church for him. They are the sweetest family. They are so loving. I, I like that. When I see them here, I'm like, I like them. Like, they're so nice. Like, partridge family or something. And it's the weirdest thing because in one instant, they are the devil spawn who's taking to, wants to take my soul and drive me into the lake. But it just took a second to have it all change because they're real people. They are real people. People who had a son who was going to be left in, in our spiritual care to some extent. And because we had this connection, um, what I felt was so horrible just minutes before, nothing. It was nothing. It's really nothing. Isn't that funny? See, I'm wired for justice. I really am. I mean, ask my wife. I love when justice is served. Just when it's not me. When somebody else, justice, somebody else gets justice served to them, hey man, they deserve it. They deserve it. Go down. Well, when it's me, I want mercy. I, I want grace, right? And I see those green tickets on the cars on street sweeping days, and I think, they deserve it. Look at the sign. Huh. When I go to a toy store, and I make a quick run in to grab a toy for a kid in the hospital with the staff, and I get a ticket, I want mercy. True story. Not that the other stories I've told aren't true, but this is a, another true story. Nate, Dave, the, our, our, our staff people, and I ran into this toy store without paying for parking because we thought, you know, we'd be in and out in a couple minutes. We, we knew exactly what we what the kid wanted. Um, he was at Children's Hospital and he, he wanted an Elmo toy. How, how hard can that be? We'll just go in and come out. Like it'll take longer to go to the parking thing than to just go into the store and come out. So we're in there. We come out. The guy is writing us a ticket. I'm like, hey, man, um, we're just buying this toy for this kid at Children's Hospital. And uh, come on, come on. You know, we just it was just a minute. And he was like, OK. And he let us off. 
But if I was across the street and I saw that, I'd be like, dummies, pay for your parking. Right. But but this kind Oakland parking enforcement guy showed us mercy. Mercy is when you don't get what you deserve. We deserve the ticket, but he didn't give it to us. He extended mercy to us. Justice is when you get what you deserve. We deserve the ticket. That would have been justice. He had every right to do that because we didn't pay for parking. Grace is when you get something you don't deserve. So if the guy said, not only am I not going to write you this ticket, anytime from here on, whenever you get a ticket, call me. I'll take care of it. Grace. And the Jonah inside me wants justice for everyone else. Actually, it's probably worse. It's usually not an eye for an eye for me. It's like an eye for your head. It's, it's really bad. But, but I want mercy and I want grace for myself. I sometimes forget about the humanity of people. I think I'm like Jonah sometimes. And, and I look at people like they're just a number or that they're just a thing. And I forget that they have families, that they have a son. That they have a kid in the hospital, that, that they have feelings, they have hardships, they have hopes, they have dreams, they have a spirit, they have a soul. That's something God never forgets. God never forgets that he created us in his image. And we as people often do forget we are created in his image. We forget how valuable each person is because we attach things to, attach things to people to judge them, to, to see how much they're worth to us. Not God. Not so with God. God loves us all. He sees us all with the same value. He loves you as much as He's loved anyone else to walk on this planet. He is able to see you as His creation. Not make judgments on, oh, this one's more valuable than this one. He is able to see the humanity within each person. So it makes me wonder how, how our way of looking at people will change if we are able to look at each person the way God sees them. It will change how we interact with people, how we talk with them, how we treat them. I think it will help us realize that there's a story behind every person, that their life is just as valuable as anyone else's. And God doesn't label us or dismiss us as insignificant. We all matter to him, no matter what our socioeconomic status, our mental state, our political stance, our marital status, our level of education, our religion, our race, our age, our gender, our sexual preference, whatever. We are all valuable to him. It's just that we're all separated from God by our sins. Sin. We're all Nineveh. We're all Jonah. And so what's God's solution? Jesus. Jesus says, hey, Dad, I'll go. I'll go down to earth. I'll go down to the Ninevites. I'll go down to the Jonas. I'll go to Oakland. I'll go to Berkeley, Emeryville, Alameda, San Francisco. I'll go anywhere you want, everywhere, and I will offer myself to them. And that's what Jesus did. He came to us, and what did, what did we do? We hung him on the cross. That was the greatest evil of all evils. All of the sin, all the wickedness, evil, darkness, discord in this world crashing down on Jesus. But God on that cross was doing something great. Our God on that cross was reconciling the world to himself. 
And Jesus brought resolution to the dissonance by his sacrificial love. And after he died, they put him in a tomb. In Jonah, God communicated with a fish way down in the deep sea that that had Jonah in its belly. And Jonah was risen out of the deep on the third day to give hope to the Ninevites. On the third day, God communicated to a stone to be rolled away. And Jesus rose and he gave hope to the world. There is no hope to the world that anyone can be accepted into a family of God without Jesus. You don't have to be an outsider because if anyone wants in, they will be let in if you're willing to repent. And with repentance, you are made part of a family. doesn't matter where you're from, what you did in the past, how much money you have or you don't have. No matter what, if you humble yourself before Jesus and repent, you will be accepted into his family. And that's how we should be as a church. The church is one place where there should be no such word as outsider. The word foreigner shouldn't be inside the church. Those words are not for us. Jesus takes us as citizens of the kingdom if we want it. And that's not to say that we are accepting of the sin nature. All I was saying was God sees even the sinner as valuable But the sin is what's causing the dissonance, and Jesus came down to resolve that. Let's move on to the last verses of the story. It's very intriguing how this ends. So God asks Jonah why he's angry. Jonah gives God the silent treatment, heads east. There God prepares a plant for Jonah. Jonah is happy for the shade. But then God prepares a worm that damages the plant. Now Jonah is mad about the plant, and he's mad about Nineveh. Then God goes into this parable. And you see why he's so mad about the shade now, right? God might change his mind. He might not take them out. Verse 10. But the Lord said, You have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored, nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And and should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, and much livestock? God is such a jokester. You see that last line in there? And much livestock? Jonah, all these people, all these kids going to Cal, and people who laugh when when they're happy, people with kids in children's hospital and cry when they're sad, I, I saved all of them. I saved every single one. They're cows too. And, and, and an Israelite audience would probably laugh at the very end because this book is pretty funny to them. And even though it's funny, it shows that love prevails. Love wins. We lose when sin prevails. We all lose when we don't live lives of love where Jesus washes us clean of our sins. All of creation loses, not just people. Even livestock loses when sin is present without the hope of Jesus. But Jesus, in his love, his grace, his mercy, brings blessing, hope, good news to the sinful, to all of creation. Not just people, but even the livestock. And God looks at all of creation and tells Jonah a parable, telling him, Jonah, you're just looking at your little shade. You're not looking beyond it. You're just concerned with Israel and my protection of of Israel. But I care for more than that. I, God, love all people. I want to show love and grace, mercy to all people, even the Ninevites. And if you love those under my shade, under my protection, the Ninevites are included in that. 
Anyone who, who wants me is included if they repent. There are no outsiders if they want my protection. Shouldn't you love these people as well? Come on, son. Don't you understand, Jonah? And after this chapter ends, you're thinking, well, there must be a chapter five. It can't just end like that. What does Jonah do? What does he say in response to God? Does he does he have a change of heart like he did when he came out of the fish? I mean, come on, you can't just end like that. Does he change and come down from his unloving, arrogant, resentful, self-righteous, prideful, critical stance? Or does he have a heart change? Does he become more like God? You know, uh, loving, gracious, merciful, uh, meek, selfless, stable, hopeful, safe. What happens? We don't know. That's how the story ends with Jonah sitting there. What kind of ending is that? Who ends stories like that? It's this wonderful musical masterpiece that ends unresolved. Well, that's dumb. Let's wrap up this wonderful book of Jonah with this last thought. Remember the prodigal son story? Do you remember the three characters in this story? There's the father who's so loving, gracious, merciful, meek, selfless, stable, hopeful, safe. There's the younger son who's rebellious, immoral, wicked, who leaves home with the money that really isn't his, but decides to repent of his wrongs. And lastly, there's the older brother who believes that he's good. He thinks he's obedient, but we find that he's unloving, arrogant, resentful, self-righteous, prideful, critical. Does the prodigal son story sound similar to Jonah? In the prodigal son, we find the father who is like God in the Jonah story. We find the prodigal son, the younger brother, who, who is wicked, but then repents like the Ninevites in the Jonah story. And then we find the older brother who is the opposite of his dad, who doesn't care if his brother has repented, like Jonah in the Jonah story. Interesting, don't you think? Luke chapter 15. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son, his dad, and his out-of-touch older brother. At the end of Luke 15, Jesus concludes the story by showing how the, the father is talking to the older brother, kind of like God talking to Jonah at the end of Jonah chapter 4. And in Luke chapter 15, Jesus ends the story there in verses 31, 32 with this. Son, you are always with me and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. In other words, son, you're still my son. I don't love you any less. But shouldn't we party? Your brother came back. He was lost but now he's home. Isn't this something to celebrate about? And at the end of verse 32, do we find out what the older brother does or what he says? No, we don't. We're not given what happens. So considering that Jesus was the smartest man to ever live, and that he knows Jonah more than anyone else, is it possible he used the story from Jonah and presented it New Testament style? Why would he do that? Why would he do the same thing and leave it so open-ended like that? Jesus is the most brilliant person to ever walk this earth. Why would he end it like this? 
It's not because he had writer's block or something like that. It's simply because that's not the point of Jonah and that's not the point of the prodigal son story. The point of Jonah isn't to see what decision Jonah ends up making. The point isn't to see what he does. The point of the Jonah story is to see the decision you end up making. You have a decision to make. You have decisions to make your entire life. I have decisions to make. This is our story. Continued. This is one of those great endings where it's it's wide open to think of the different scenarios so you can fit any one of your stories into that and see how you're going to carry it through. So now this becomes your story. Are you like Jonah? Who is your Nineveh? How will you pray for them? How will you respond to them? What will you do? What will you say? This is your story. Let's pray. And just in the, the quietness of, of your own heart and your mind, um, take this time to talk with God. And knowing that, that God is here with us and His Spirit is here, ask Him if you're being like Jonah. Ask Him to show you who your Nineveh is. Is it a spouse or a former spouse? Is it uh, someone in your family? Is it uh, your children? Is it um, a former friend? Or is it just, are you racist? Um, Do you have some sort of discrimination in you? Ask him to change your heart towards those people because they have value. They were made in God's image. Even if you disagree with anything that's in their life, them as humanity created in God's image, they have value. And let God minister to you. For some of you, this is going to be consonance in the way we end. For some of you, this is going to be extreme dissonance and make you feel really uncomfortable. Because we're going to end in silence. And when you're done and getting things uh, straight away and after you've communicated with God for a bit, um, you can feel free to step out to the foyer or the cafe and, and have some cake and let the others that need to deal with stuff remain in here. And we'll also have prayer in the front here.